Hey everyone, it's Pacific. Uh, apologies on the kind of long and unscheduled break, uh, but we're back with some more episodes. Um, we're going to do our best to try and continue through to October, and then we're going to take a much longer break while we prepare for Insidious Inspirations Season 2. Um, I'll have a lot more news on that and what that'll entail very, very soon, but for now, enjoy this week's episode. Cannibalism is a common theme in horror films. From Leatherface's gruesome family dinner in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Hannibal Lecter's more refined deliver with fava beans and a nice Chianti in The Silence of the Lambs, to the growing appetite of Justine, the protagonist of Julia Ducournau's stomach-churning coming-of-age film Raw. But one cult classic film takes a different look at cannibalism, shoving aside the spectacle of Texas Chainsaw, the quiet malice of Hannibal Lecter, or the stylish European flair of Raw. The 1999 horror western Ravenous from writer Ted Griffin and director Antonia Bird uses cannibalism as a metaphor for the rampant destruction of Manifest Destiny and draws on true stories of desperation leading to cannibalism in the remote wilderness. Though the plot of Ravenous takes inspiration from several sources, one story in particular served as the basis for the film. One winter day in 1874, six men went into the wilderness of the San Juan Mountains, and only one came back out. What started as an expedition gone wrong took a grim turn down a path filled with murder, starvation, and the ultimate taboo, eating human flesh. This is the story of Alfred Packer, the Colorado cannibal. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. By the 1870s, the glittering promise of wealth that had spurred on the California gold rush had all but dried up. A few men had found their fortunes, but hundreds more had trekked and toiled for nothing but some wasted time. Still, the stories of gold buried beneath the hills, just waiting for some brave and lucky men to unearth it, were too appealing to ignore. And the towns out west, where gold was being mined, brought opportunities beyond just the precious metal. Jobs in hunting, trapping and as wilderness guides. It was this enticing potential, the chance at building a better life and possibly striking it rich, that led 20 men to leave the Bingham Canyon mines near Salt Lake City, Utah in November of 1873. Their destination? The gold fields of Colorado near what is now Breckenridge, where rumors of a major strike had been reported. The men barely knew each other, united only by their common goal. Still, they banded together and prepared for the arduous journey ahead. Little did they know the horrors that awaited them in the unforgiving mountains of Colorado. About 25 miles from their starting point, the city of Provo, Utah, the group encountered a stranger who offered his services as a prospector and a guide, in exchange for joining them on their expedition. His name was Alfred Packer, and unfortunately for the party, he knew just as little about the terrain as they did. Alfred Packer was a lot of things. A former Union soldier discharged for epilepsy. A hunter a man who used a very curious spelling of his name, and a nearly pathological liar. But he was not a reliable guide when it came to surviving in the Colorado mountains. He was not at all the impressive figure he presented himself as, but the hopeful group of prospectors wouldn't find that out until it was far too late. So, with no rifle, no money, and nothing to his name but a Colt revolver, Alfred Packer joined the group on their journey, just in time for the winter snowstorms to blow in. The winds were icy, chilling the men to the bone, 
and the torrential snowfall weighed down their wagons and tripped up their horses, not to mention how it covered the path they were trying to follow. Soon, the entire terrain was one uniform blanket of white, the trail indistinguishable from the rest of the land around it. In order to make their way, they had to rely only on the arrow of a compass. Meanwhile, Packer's lies about his own experience were beginning to show, and the group became hopelessly lost. There was nothing they could do but guess the right direction, bundle up as tight as they could to keep the cold from seeping in, and stay the course. But the rations were dwindling fast, and there was no foraging or hunting to be done in this kind of cold. Soon there was nothing left to eat but the feed they had brought along for the horses. When that ran out, the horses would have to be next. Thankfully, before any horses were sacrificed to the gnawing hunger in their bellies, the desperate men found a safe haven, the encampment of Ute native Chief Ore. The people at the camp were startled by the sudden arrival of so many exhausted strangers, but Chief Ore gave them a warm welcome, providing them food and shelter. As the men warmed up and filled their empty stomachs, he gave them a friendly warning. They should consider postponing their expedition until the springtime, otherwise they were likely to perish in the mountains when the next snowstorm hit. No one in his tribe would dream of trying to pass through the mountains this time of year, and he would be happy to have the men stay at his camp until winter was through. Half of the men accepted his offer, staying behind until spring. Five of the remaining determined prospectors attempted to make the trip, but eventually turned back when starvation and freezing temperatures got the best of them. By then, there were only six men left who had not yet accepted the reality that they would have to wait for safe passage. On February 9, 1874, Packer and five other men set off on a trek to the Los Pinos Agency, leaving the original group behind. The party consisted of Packer, Shannon Wilson Bell, James Humphrey, Frank Butcher Miller, George California Noon, and Israel Swan. There were 75 miles ahead of them, but with Chief Ore's directions, they were confident in the path they were following. The journey went smoothly until Packer led the group to a higher path in the mountains, ignoring the warning from Chief Ore about the risk of deadly weather conditions. Their food supply was running dangerously low, even for the original route they had planned. They hadn't prepared for the weather, with no snowshoes, no heavy winter clothes, and limited supplies for building fires. Their confidence and determination seemed incredibly misplaced as they left behind the safety of the beaten path. Still, they pressed on, disappearing into the woods and the oncoming storm with two rifles, a pistol, a few knives, and a hatchet. No one could be sure what happened after that, and only one man would survive to tell the tale. On April 16, 1874, the men of the Los Pinos Agency, including General Charles Adams, were sitting in the mess hall, starting their day with breakfast and scattered conversation, when the door was suddenly flung open with a desperate force. There on the doorstep was a sallow and haggard man in torn clothing, pleading for food and shelter. It was Alfred Packer who had stumbled out of the woods with only the clothes on his back, a rifle, a knife, a steel coffee pot, and a small satchel. The men tried to feed Packer, but as soon as he'd swallowed the food, he was vomiting it back up. After so long in a state of near starvation, his body wasn't prepared to handle solid food. So instead, they poured him a shot of whiskey, then another, and another. Finally, rosy-cheeked and loosened up, Packer was ready to tell them the story of what had happened. He claimed that, as he and his group made their journey, he became snowblind, 
his eyes injured from the reflection of the sun off the endless stretches of snow. He was disoriented, unable to see where he was going, and thus a burden holding back the rest of the group. Israel Swan handed Packer a rifle to allow him to defend himself. Then the group left him there, alone. He scavenged for roots and rosebuds, keeping himself just full enough to stay alive and moving, and somehow, against all odds, survived two months lost in the wilderness with no help before he managed to find his way back to civilization. It was an impressive story, filled with heroic determination and fortitude. There was just one problem. It didn't quite add up. The men Packer had told his story to couldn't help but notice that he looked surprisingly robust for surviving as long as he did, under the conditions he had described. Still, there was no real reason to assume he was lying. Why would he? To make enough money for the journey home, Packer sold the Winchester rifle he was carrying to the Justice of the Peace at the agency, and left for the town of Sawatch to buy supplies. There he rented a room in Dolan's saloon. That was when more suspicious behavior began. He had claimed to be broke, but now Packer was throwing around money like it meant nothing to him. He spent the equivalent of over $2,000 in modern currency during his time at the saloon, and the equivalent of over 1000 at the general store. He had only sold the rifle for the equivalent of about 200 So where did all the extra money come from? As he sat drinking heavily in the saloon, telling conflicting versions of his harrowing story to anyone who would listen, the townspeople noticed him paying his tab from several different wallets. Throw in the fact that no one else in his party had been heard from or even seen since the initial departure from Chief Ari's camp, and the whole affair was starting to smell rotten. As the town people were whispering amongst themselves about the suspicious Alfred Packer, a member of his original party arrived in Sawatch. Preston Nutter, who had stayed behind in Ori's camp and chosen safety over the possibility of wealth. Like the others who had listened to it, he found Packer's story suspect. As if to confirm his worst fears, Packer produced a knife during their conversation that Nutter recognized as belonging to Frank Miller. He asked Packer why he had it, and he claimed that Miller had stuck it into a tree and left it there before disappearing. Nutter's stomach dropped at the obvious lie, and he knew in his gut that something horrible had happened. This wasn't a simple tragedy brought on by bad weather and worse decisions. There had been foul play. Nutter carried on to the Los Pinos Agency, where he and four other original party members spoke to General Adams about their concerns around Packer and his unbelievable story. Sharing their concerns, he agreed to send an agency officer to collect Packer. They didn't want to scare him off, however, so they claimed to require his presence to lead a search party for his missing companions. Reluctantly, Packer agreed. When he arrived at the agency, General Adams was waiting to confront him with what he had learned from Nutter and the others. Packer continued to dig his heels in, claiming that his impressive cash flow was due to a loan he had managed to get in Sawatch. But no one there would admit to lending him even a single cent. As Adams and the others tried to pin him down and extract the truth, Packer dodged again and again with new lies and excuses. It seemed as if they would never get him to admit exactly what had happened out there, until an unexpected, sickening twist came bursting through the door. Two Ute tribesmen had been hunting nearby and found something deeply troubling that they brought back to the agency. They entered the room with somber faces and holding strips of strange-looking dried meat. When asked what kind it was, they replied that it was human. The color drained from the once-confident Packer's face. His knees buckled, and he fainted, collapsing to the floor in a heap. 
When he woke up, he was blubbering, weeping, and promised to tell the truth. He stared at Adams, the facade crumbling away, and said, it would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. Finally, after many tears and pleas for mercy, Packer signed what would have been his first confession. Old Man Swan died first and was eaten by the other five persons about ten days out of camp. Four or five days afterwards, Humphreys died and was also eaten. He had about $133. I found the pocketbook and I took the money. Sometime afterwards, while I was carrying wood, the butcher was killed, as the other two told me accidentally, and he was also eaten. Bell shot California with Swan's gun, and I killed Bell. Shot him. I covered up the remains and took a large piece along. Then traveled 14 days into the agency. Bell wanted to kill me with his rifle. Struck a tree and broke his gun. After signing his confession, Packer was arrested for murder. Though he claimed self-defense, it seemed to the public and to General Adams himself that Packer had entered the woods with malicious intent from the start, and that his word could not be trusted. Headlines circulated all across the country describing the man-eating murderer, and General Adams was confident that justice would be served. But then, in August 1874, he escaped from custody, and no one had a clue where he went. Just as Packer was making a mad dash for freedom, disappearing from the detection of the law and the public, the atrocities that occurred out in the woods finally came to light. An illustrator for Harper's Weekly stumbled upon the bodies of Packer's party members, wrapped loosely in blankets under a grove of spruce trees. Their bones were broken, skulls were shattered, and the fattiest parts of their body had been sliced off for consumption. They had what they needed to put Packer away, all they needed now was Packer himself. Nine years later, a man in the right place at the right time recognized a stranger's laugh in a Wyoming saloon, and it was finally time for Packer to answer for his crimes. Up next, we find out what happened when Alfred Packer finally went up against the Colorado justice system, the trials, the changing stories, and the fight to get to the bottom of what really happened out there in the woods. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now, back to our show. In March of 1883, Packer was brought back into custody and transported to Colorado. There, he signed a second confession and told a version of the story that was dramatically different from his previous tales. According to Packer, the men had run out of rations and were desperately searching for any wild food they could come across. They asked Packer to go further up the mountain to see if he could spot anything from a higher altitude. When he returned to their camp, he found Bell, behaving erratically, eating a piece of meat by the fire. He asked Bell where the meat came from, but quickly got the answer. The rest of the men, everyone but Bell and Packer, were dead, brutalized, their skulls crushed with a hatchet, 
There was a chunk of meat missing from Miller's leg. Bell looked up at the sound of footsteps and ran towards Packer with a wild look in his eye, brandishing the hatchet. In self-defense, Packer shot him in the stomach. Then alone with the corpses of his fallen party, he had no choice but to eat the only sustenance available to him, their flesh. Packer was tried in April of 1883 at the Hinsdale County Courthouse in Lake City. General Adams was one of the witnesses called to the stand, relaying his encounters with Packer at the agency and his various lies. In his own testimony, Packer described battling with his own hunger, resisting the impulse to break the ultimate taboo, before he finally gave in. I gave up to it. I ate that meat and it has hurt me for nine years. I was perfectly happy and can't tell how long I remained there. On April 13th, Judge Jerry handed down his verdict. Alfred Packer, the judgment of the court is that you'll be removed from hence to the jail of Hinsdale County, and there confined until the 19th day of May, A.D. 1883, and that on said 19th day of May, 1883, you be taken from thence by the sheriff of Hensdale County to a place of execution prepared for this purpose, at some point within the corporate limits of the town of Lake City, in the said county of Hensdale, and between the hours of 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. of said day. You, then and there, by said sheriff, be hung by the neck until you are dead, 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 and may God have mercy upon your soul. The judge added that, while society cannot forgive, it will forget. As the days come and go and the years of our pilgrimage roll by, the memory of you and your crimes will fade from the minds of men. He had no way of knowing just how wrong he was in more ways than one. Only three days before Packer was to swing from the noose in front of an eager crowd, a loophole was discovered. He had been charged under territorial law, but sentenced under state law. In addition to that, his alleged murders had occurred on Ute land, which did not fall under territory or state designation. That was all the defense needed to stay the execution and call a second trial. In October 1885, Packer's murder conviction was reversed. He stood trial one more time in August 1886, was convicted of manslaughter, and sentenced to 40 years in prison. He kept to himself while behind bars, keeping on his best behavior and spending his time building intricate dollhouses in the prison workshop. Meanwhile, a writer at the Denver Post stoked sympathy for Packer in the court of public opinion, advocating for the possibility of his innocence. This, combined with his good behavior and several medical conditions, resulted in him being paroled in January of 1901. Finally, a free man, he moved to a cabin in Jefferson County where he lived quietly for the rest of his life, working as a curator for a local museum. Though it has never been officially proven, there are rumors he was a strict vegetarian for the remainder of his days as well, unwilling to ever touch another bite of meat ever again. In April of 1907, Alfred Packard died, but his legacy did not die with him, to the contrary, in death, the story took on a life of its own. 115 years after Packer and his companions first disappeared into the mountains, James E. Stars, a professor of forensic science at George Washington University, exhumed the bodies of Packer's alleged victims, hoping to uncover some long-buried answers. Investigation of the remains showed blunt force trauma to the skulls of two men, but no other notable injuries. The other three had similar blunt force trauma, but also showed signs of defensive wounds, as if they had been in a struggle before death and had their arms hacked at with a hatchet. One of the bodies with these defensive wounds belonged to Bell. Notably, none of Packer's versions of his story included fighting off Bell with the hatchet. 
This, according to Stars, suggested a very different picture of that fateful night than the one painted by Packer. This is what the evidence seemed to suggest. He had bludgeoned two of the men to death in their sleep, and the sound of the carnage had awoken the three others. They tried to fight Packer off, but he wounded them with the hatchet, and finished each of them off with a blow to the head. Then, he cooked and ate their meat in an attempt to stay alive through the winter. However, there are some issues with this theory, namely the different states of decomposition that the bodies were found in. In 1994, David P. Bailey of the Museum of West Colorado undertook an investigation of his own, and found evidence that Bell was indeed shot as Packer had claimed. He couldn't be sure, however, if he was shot in self-defense or cold-blooded murder. Though some have tried to get to the bottom of the mystery of Alfred Packer and his lost party, others are content to revel in the macabre nature of his story. In Colorado and across the country, he has become almost a folkloric figure. Ripley's Believe It or Not exhibit has claimed to have Packer's mummified head among its collection of oddities, though there is insufficient paperwork to prove the head is in fact his. The Hinsdale County Museum boasts pieces of evidence from the case and trial, including Packer's shackles from jail, and the cast of a skull fragment potentially belonging to Frank Miller. Others reflect on the memory of Alfred Packer with a morbid sense of humor. The University of Colorado Boulder serves food at the Alfred E. Packer Memorial Grill, and the school used to hold a yearly raw meat tossing contest in his name. Trey Parker, creator of South Park, created a student film entitled Cannibal, the Musical, during his time at the same school. James E. Banks published a 1998 book entitled Alfred Packer's Wilderness Cookbook, and the town of Littleton has routinely held a 5K called the Alfred Packer Cannibal Fast Food Run. Lake City, the home of the crime itself, hosts Al Packer Day every few years, serving food at the Packer Saloon and Cannibal Grill and offering nightly stays at the Cannibal Cabins. It might all seem a little bit grotesque, but Colorado has embraced this dark chapter in their state's history, for better or for worse. For many, it is an attempt to reclaim a bleak but unique part of their history, to transform it into a point of pride. There is something so inherently human about turning such a bleak story into a series of dark jokes, and something so uniquely American about trying to profit off of it. In spite of his reputation, Alfred Packer insisted on his innocence for the rest of his life. He was quoted as saying, In years later, it will be cleared up, for there has never been a case where a man has been sentenced unjustly that sooner or later it was not cleared up. I had one hope and that was that sometime I would be able to hold up before the people of Colorado that I am not guilty of the murder of the four men. I killed Bell, I admit it, and have done so all along, on the stand, in public, and in jail. As I said before, the whole mystery will be cleared up sometime. But with little surviving evidence, with Packer and those who put him away long dead and buried, it's unlikely that we'll ever know exactly what happened out there in the woods an act of deliberate, malicious violence, or the tragic outcome of a desperate, primal bid for survival. The truth is out there in the mountains, buried like a vein of gold that no lucky prospector will ever strike. The rest of us wander, lost in the darkness, searching for answers, but knowing we will never truly be satisfied. This week's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was the incredibly talented Danny Sweet, and I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. 
Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska, and this is a Bloody FM production. For more information, go to bloody.fm.